you really need to have that courage and bravery to introduce something new to the market because it could either you know make it big or you could fail and not being afraid of failing and always trying to be a leader rather than just seeing what are the trends and trying to follow that and use it as a springboard i think that's okay it's great to innovate sometimes that way looking at what's out there improve it and build on it you don't need to overwhelm yourself but being a leader in the industry and doing things that are big and game changers that's really something that takes courage and you know you have to believe in yourself and your idea and be willing to fail if you, if needed and that little brilliant chunk of wisdom is from Hussein Amwasi. And we talk today about his new book called The Innovator's Handbook, A Short Guide to Unleashing Your Creative Mindset. Uh, I came across Hussein's work uh, originally on a video on the internet, uh, did a little digging and was just fascinated by his work as a very highly regarded product designer across a number of different uh, fields and industries from shoes. He's worked with both Nike and Adidas um, through uh, 3D and, and motion graphics, which are just absolutely off the charts as a VFX artist. So uh, I, as I was pulling back the layers, uh, I learned of his most recent book, which has just come out. And uh, a quick read through the book made me have to have him on the show. In this particular episode, we talk about innovation. That is the basis for his book. Uh, and we talk about innovation generally and out there in the world. And it sounds like this big, scary um, thing, which we don't know how to you know approach or tackle, or we think it's required in order to put something out in the world. And in this particular episode, I think Hussein does a good job of helping us break down specifically what innovate, what are the steps toward innovation, how you can innovate in very small ways in your industry to stand out, and how some of the biggest thinkers in the world innovate with a capital I to introduce products that the universe has never seen before. It's a fascinating episode relative to anyone, uh, a company, either a solopreneur or inside a large company, uh, uh, an individual artist to a leader. It is a fascinating episode. You're going to love Hussein, unique perspective. And so I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly and Hussein Al-Mosawi talking about design and innovation. Hey, we made it happen. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Congrats on the new book. Uh, I have been deeply steeped in it over the course of the past, uh, I don't know, four or five days, and I love it. But before we get to that, um, I would love if you would introduce yourself to our community, people who've been listening, uh, whether they're new to the show or for some, some you know long amount of time. I love to start off with, in your own words, uh, describing a little bit of who you are and why you, you know, why you're on the show. Sure, sure. Uh, so yeah, my name is Hussein Al-Musawi. Uh, I'm a designer. I'm a business owner. I have my own studio. Uh, recently, I'm an author. Uh, I work mostly in product design, industrial design, and CGI animation. And my thing is I always like to blend the two worlds together and come up with futuristic experiences and concepts. So so yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Uh, also, a little stint working at uh, Parsons Teaching Design. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. I, it's a obviously a legendary design school, uh, one that in my former company, Creative Live, we used to collaborate with and a uh, really impressive roster of teachers. And obviously it's a it's a magnet for creators to go there. So uh, I know you've taught a little bit there. What's what's the story there? 
for sure. So, so yeah, when I was working as a senior designer with Adidas in New York, uh, I also taught at Parsons and I taught at the industrial design program, uh, teaching human factors, ergonomics, and just design thinking in general. Cool. So we're going to go one layer deeper for, you just said a bunch of words that I think some folks who are <laughs> listening, who might not be in the area of design, things like ergonomics, um, you know, product design, human, human design, what are some of those things? And, um, you know, where would we have experienced, say, in our day to day lives, your your work? Sure. So so whatever you're designing, whether it's an industrial design, you're designing a car, a phone, a chair, or you're designing a CGI piece where there's a explosion or there's something, uh, there's rain, there's, you know, crazy stuff happening, like you see in commercials and movies. At the end of the day, it's all an experience. So how does it make you feel? What is the emotion behind it? Uh, when you see it, when you touch it, uh, how does it make you feel? How do you react to it? So that's something that I work on like on a, on a deep level when we talk about design. Uh, how people interact with the stuff that I do, the, the phone that you hold in your hands, how does it fit in your hands? How do you put it on your ears? Where are the buttons placed? What does it feel like? The materials, the colors, materials, finishes, and so on. So every detail is really uh, thought of in the design process, and there's intent behind it. So, so yeah. Well, to me, those are um, things that one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, we have had very few industrial designers or uh, yeah, people who make products that you come in contact and you you cited your time at adidas you've also done stuff with you know in computer interfaces and uh and i what i love to call out for folks who don't know about that is is, is what you just said all of these things have intention behind them and i think this is a huge piece of your new book as well um basically around innovation so let's now try and put a pin in this idea of that you design all these experiences, even the, you know, holding a phone, for example, where the buttons go and um, the book that you wrote around innovation. I'm wondering if you can talk about the book for a second and then uh, let's try and connect how the work that you do in products relates to innovation and the way that we experience, sure, uh, sure, we, sure. We experience the world. So, so yeah, growing up as an aspiring designer, I always, uh, I always wanted to design. I always wanted to do things that had an impact on the world. I was inspired by great innovators and inventors. And I always wowed by the, by the things that they made. Like, how did they do it? How did they reach that point where they created a cool product? And it was very overwhelming to me as a young designer growing up. It wasn't until I joined Nike, uh, I, I joined their design internship, when I understood that everything is about innovation. Uh, it's not really how, how cool something looks, how cool something is. You know, as a young designer, you look at design as something that is cool and that's it, but it's way beyond that. It's not just aesthetics. Uh, how are you changing things? How are you improving things? How are you be bettering people's experiences and lives? So, so that mindset at Nike, it really taught me to, to look at design and change my approach towards design 180 degrees. And moving on from Nike to Adidas, working with EA Sports, working with Apple, Ford, Amazon, all these Fortune 500 innovative companies, I realized there's always a pattern. They don't have a guideline of what innovation is, how you should innovate, but it all, it's all these brilliant minds that work together 
and come up with great ideas. And I saw these patterns of their approach and their mindset towards how you can come up with great ideas and how you can improve a product and how you can work as a team. So that's the idea behind the book. Like, what are these things that I saw from my perspective that allow you to become a better innovator and push the boundaries over and over year after year? So that's the, that's the whole idea behind the book. And it's not the ultimate guide to innovation. I mentioned that in the first chapter. <laughs> it's just a short, fun read to spark your curiosity, to spark your, start your engines to, you know, get going and, and be brave with the, whatever you have in mind to do. Great. We'll get to the book in a second. I'll just get the title here. It's called The Innovator's Handbook, A Short Guide to Unleashing Your Creative Mindset. Uh, there's a word in the title that uh, before we move on to some of the subjects that you just mentioned, I'm particularly interested in first principles of design, of design thinking. And I think that'd be really helpful and interesting for our <laughs> listeners. But before we dive into that, I want to focus on one word in your subheading, and that is not guide, not short, not unleash, but mindset. What role, why did you choose that you know, word in the subhead? So if you, if you did, it's, if it's the title of the book, you must place disproportionate um, interest or focus or attention on mindset. So why that title? Why specifically that word? What did you mean? And why did you absolutely, absolutely. So, so there's two things I think that people always look at. One part is the skills and the crafts and how good you can sketch and how good you can do your 3D and you know any discipline in design and creativity. There are always the skills and the crafts part of it. But then there's also a huge part of it, which is the mindset of how you look at things, how you approach things. What does your process look like? How do you get from point A to B to C consistently? with every product, with every project. And that's what I really saw in the industry, working with Apple and working with Ford and working with these companies. There's always a certain process that allows us to go from point A to point B and to point C, which I call the innovation territory, which is the, the, the point which we weren't expecting to land on. So, so that's what the mindset really uh, allows us to do, having a clear process, a clear path of where we want to go and how to get there. All right. It's natural. I have to pull on this thread a little bit more. And you talked about point A and B and C <laughs> is really this unexpected, um, beautiful place where, you know, uh, whether it's just, whether it's genius or whatever, the, the alchemy that's gone together. Uh, talk to us about point C, this sort of unexpected area that is the delight. And if the process is working, to your point, you can regularly and predictably and routinely and repeatedly end up at this magical point C. Sure, sure. So when you start each project, usually you start with a brief. They give you a brief. This is what you want to do. This is the problem we want to solve. As a designer, as a team, you're always thinking, let's say we're designing a shoe. I want to do the most lightweight shoe in the market. So I look at the shoe. What are the materials? On the first day, uh, the instance that I get that uh, brief and the project, I have some ideas in my mind. Okay, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And when you start to dive deep and you start to look at the different possibilities that you have, you start to experiment, you start to fail. Uh, it's good to have that fluidity. You're going to see that the process is going to push you left and right, left and right. And being flexible and learning to fail and exploring new things, learning new things along the way, 
that's where when you land on point C. Like I've never, or most of the time, I've never <laughs> started a project thinking that I'm going to land somewhere, but I, you know, the exciting part is that I land somewhere totally different, totally unexpected. And that point C could also be something where it even changes the brief. We thought we need a lightweight project, uh, lightweight shoe, but in fact, we need a shoe that is uh, maybe more durable because we started to ask the right questions. We started to test a few things. We started to ask the consumers and so on. So just being open to different possibilities, allowing our curiosity, our learnings, our failures to push us towards that territory. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I promised to circle back to first principles. This is an area, and you know, again, you you do. In fact, the second chapter of the book is dedicated to first principles. But you know, as I have deconstructed your career and you know, listened to other videos and seen other things that you've written, this idea of first principles is, you know, a very it was made a very strong impression on me. And I'm wondering if you can now talk in some detail about what first principles are and how, you know, how do they, they affect your process, the design process in general, or the fact who anyone who's listening, you know, and they want to apply this to their own lives. Talk to us about first principles. What do you, what sure. are they, what do you mean? And how? So first principles, it's a really fascinating uh, process and approach that I, I've really enjoyed working with in the industry and I've seen it multiple times. Uh, I'll give you an example. So when I was working with Adidas, for example, I was working on different shoes for James Harden, signature athlete. And what we would do every time, uh, we would design his shoe for the next season and the following season. We would take the shoe from the previous season, deconstruct it, break it down into its most simplest form, put it all down on a table, the laces, the outsole, the, the padding, the logo, the branding, everything. Just put it down on a table. And then look at our brief, like what's our brief? We want a shoe that is more durable, that's more comfortable, that's more lightweight, whatever it is. And then we go to each of those parts, each of those elements, and we start to question it. Is this part actually achieving what we want? Is it lightweight? Can we improve it? Can we remove it? What are the existing technologies that exist today that didn't exist last season? Okay, let's use that. Let's tap into different industries. And this just allows us to ask really great questions see what we need, what we don't need in the shoe. And then at the end of that process, bring that whole shoe back together. And you have a shoe that is much better. And it's uh, it's uh, already improved and innovated on for the next season. And then the following season, you do the same and the same and the same. And you could do that even outside of industrial design, like even in uh, UX design, UI design. Uh, I've seen it where you take your application, you take your website, You'd, you'd break it down into a simplest form, uh, the icons, the colors, everything. And then you, again, start to question everything, uh, look at the consumer journey and so on. So I think that's really like one of my favorite uh, methods of designing because it really allows you to look at everything and not have that expectation of whatever was designed before is the right way or the best way. It can always be improved upon. Mm. Uh, I wanted to pull a quote here from for just to help people grasp the idea of first principles. Um, and this is an adaptation from Aristotle who described first principles as the first basis from which a thing is known. And it's sort of like these individual parts, for example, that, that 
you know, you're talking about, you deconstruct these things. And instead of a shoe, which is an assembly of a bunch of different things, you're looking at the very basis, the things that are the building blocks of these shoes. And you start to then, you know, reassemble them in this interesting way. What is, you know, how have you understood that, you know, you gave the example of it's, it's, you know, when you're working on hardened shoe, that's, that's cool and interesting you then gave the example of someone who's working on their own website. Is there a, are, are there other ways that are not that, that some that process somehow works differently or the, is this process always the same? It's a matter of deconstruction, looking at each of the individual parts, finding sort of the maximizing or making better each of those individual parts and then reassembling. Is that the process that we're talking about? Yeah. Like, so, so the main thing is that you always, uh, it's easy to fall in the trap when you're designing something new of looking at how things look and exist and then just replicating that and thinking that that is the ultimate way and the best way to do it. I mean, look at everything around us today. Look at the TVs, look at the phones, look at our bicycles, cars. There's usually one aesthetic that fits all. Look at the Google Pixel, look at the iPhone and look at the Samsung Galaxy. From a distance, they all look the same. Then they're competing for the details, the better camera, the better size. The, but in general, it looks the same. But there was always a leader in the industry that took that initiative of breaking out of that bubble and out of that bu- and pushing the boundary of creating something new. So that's the benefit of first principles. I mean, even our chairs, our tables, that's it. We're, we're comfortable with it. And it could be the best way to do it. But do we revisit it and re-question it and reassess? So that's really where it's it's useful. And whether you're yeah. doing a product, whether you're doing UI, UX, same thing. Yeah, this idea that, for example, the Steve Jobs, you know, if you go back to his introduction of the iPhone one, right? It was on the screen. He put the Palm Pilot and the Trio and the Razor and all these other incarnations of the phone. And then when he, you know, unveils the iPhone. It's, it's basically, it doesn't have many of the previous attributes that were thought to be, oh, this is required for the phone. The most obvious being the, you know, actual uh, analog keys that you pressed, right? Exactly. Those were were buttons that were, and, and, you know, to take that away from button land and go into screen land and touchscreen interfaces, that was, you know, to use your, your example here, that's innovation so, and it takes courage as well uh oh say I mean, more about this this is yeah <laughs> right now everyone's like oh cool i get the concept but uh you know yeah, i talk about this in the book as well like are you an actor like do you act or do you react are you a leader or a follower and all these concepts and principles that i share they're connected with each other so when we talk about first principles like the example you gave about steve jobs and the iphone you really need to have that courage and bravery to introduce something new to the market because it could either you know, make it big or you could fail. And not being afraid of failing and always trying to be a leader rather than just seeing what are the trends and trying to follow that and use it as a springboard. I think that's okay. It's great to innovate sometimes that way, looking at what's out there, improve it and build on it. You don't need to overwhelm yourself. But being a leader in the industry and doing things that are big and game changers that's really something that takes courage and, you know, you have to believe in yourself and your idea and be willing to fail if, you, if needed. So there's a chapter in the book uh, that I appreciated was honor your vision, but I want to reconcile that. Or I want to ask you rather to reconcile this <laughs> idea of honoring your vision with something that you just mentioned. And in my notes here, it's like reconcile the vision 
with where you are in your personal trajectory. So right now there's someone who's listening, who's a new writer, right? They have an ambition. They may have had a day job and they have an ambition to write a book or a screenplay or something. And I think there's a ostensibly a trap that first time or even second or third or fourth time writers will say, I want to write something that the world has never seen before. And this mindset of trying to go from zero to 100 and, you know, short circuit, perhaps a lot of hard work or so help me understand what you would prescribe to someone, because you just, there's a little hint in your last answer, right? Which is, you know, this, there's a, it is perfectly admirable to take an existing thing, improve it a little bit, put your, you know, noodle on it, put your two cents there. And then there's, you know, Steve Jobs completely reinventing what phones look like. And so help, you know, guide us with your experience and maybe maybe some uh, advice, you know, it is, should everybody always be gunning for the radical innovation or where does your level of experience and whatnot, you know, where does that come into play? And I'm sure there are other people who are super experienced that are terrified of innovating. And so what can we do to, to help them realize that, Hey, look at, you've done this incremental stuff long enough and now it's time to go big. Help us, you know, paint for sure. A, for sure. A, a so, so, so I look at it. There. Yeah. I look at it that there's two ways of innovating. One is the, big inventions that you are uh, reintroducing something new to the market, something that's never been seen before, reinventing the wheel. But then most innovations that we have in the market, and that's even what I mentioned in the book, it shouldn't be overwhelming. Most innovations are just, it's a remix of two things that already exist. Bringing two things together, putting them together, you can come up with something new. You can look at an existing product. I can look at a camera, a keyboard, a mouse. What can I improve in that? Is it the touch? Is it the, the how, how it fits my hand? Is it the battery life? Maybe there's just one element in it that is improved and I'm innovating on. So you don't really need to reinvent the wheel every time, every time. You don't need to be a Steve Jobs every time. Of course, we strive for greatness. We strive to do big things. We strive to uh, do things that have never been seen before. But at the same time, uh, that's not going to be possible to do every single time, especially with the, you know, when you don't even have the budget for R&D, you don't have a big team, you don't have a big company. So innovation should always be looked at as a process that is where you take baby steps and you're improving upon something step by step by step by step. So, so that's one part of it. Another part of it is that, I mean, let's go back to the iPhone. When the iPhone was introduced, uh, of course, you had Steve Jobs, you had an innovative team, amazing brilliant minds behind it. But two inventions that were brought into the iPhone were not invented by Apple. So even having that innovative mindset of bringing things from the outside and taking it into your product, improving it, that's really key. So uh, the iPhone, they had two things. One was uh, Fingerworks, which was uh, which was a device that was created for people to, uh, it was a touchpad where you could basically use uh, the mouse uh, using your finger. That was something that was brought into the iPhone. They acquired them. And then uh, the other one was SoundJam, which was essential to building iTunes and what iTunes became later on. So Apple took those, acquired them, improved them, and put it into their device. So looking at outside uh, things from the outside and bringing them into your product, it, uh, it's, it's never wrong to do that. And I also did that, and my team did that when I was in Adidas. When I was working on a James Harden shoe, 
if I was looking at a shoe that gave him ultimate fit, okay, I looked at what is the seatbelt industry doing. If I was going to design a shoe that gave him ultimate traction, okay, I looked at what's Continental Tires doing or you know any tire companies for bicycles, for cars. So always tap into other industries, always see what you can combine. And it's finding that intersection. Uh, Franz Johansson, author of the Medici Effect, he talks about this, finding those intersections between things that are unrelated, bringing them together. And last point I'm going to make, uh, it's talked a lot. <laughs> uh, no, this is the way, this is long form. Please keep uh, last, uh, last point. Here. Last point that I'm going to make on this is uh, Ryan Holiday. I think you had him on your show as well recently. Of course, long time yeah. friend, more than a Amazing, day. amazing author. Love his books, love his content. Uh, so he also talks about his books when he puts his books together. Like he shows the process of all the books that he reads, all the stories that he pulls from them, the quotes, and then how those become the foundations uh, to his new book. So again, books are made up of existing books, existing ideas. You add your twist, your thoughts to it. But again, you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time, whether you're a writer, a product designer, whatever you are, uh, just you know, add your spin to it. You mentioned a couple times in our conversation up to now, you know, you just casually sort of, oh, if you fail or if you, <laughs> you know, if, if, and, you know, that you chronicle one, aspect of the book on oh, it's a chapter that starts on 154 called learn to fail and you document uh being rejected for jobs more than 80 times and so i'm wondering if you can you know go into a little bit more detail about what you know what kept you going and what is an extrapolatable understanding of you know what are the mechanics of continuing to push through and not just say oh you know try harder or you got to learn to fail and get up and keep going. Like those are sort of sure, sure, here sure. throughout culture, but you applied to 80, 80 jobs and didn't get it. So how, you know, how do you, what, what advice can you give on helping someone? Because this, this is a, this is a very common theme in this show. And for the universe of this community where we're trying to innovate, we're trying to be creative, we're trying to leave a stayed life that other people have written for us and go out on our own and make an adventure of this one precious gift that we've got. So obviously failure is a big piece of it. Absolutely. Help us understand. So, so failure, it takes us back to the idea of having the right mindset. And the reason I mentioned that story in the book of why I applied 80 times and then I fail until I eventually got in, it's that whether you, I'm applying to a job or I'm designing a product or an experience or whatever it is, Learning to fail and accepting failure, uh, it, to me, it's all about persistence. Do you really want what you want? Like, okay, everybody says, I dream to be this, or I want to be this or that. But you don't just talk the talk, but you should also walk the walk. And that's key to me. Uh, do I really want it? How bad do I want it? How far am I willing to go to get it? Am I going to accept, look at those failures as learnings and lessons and things that I can take to improve on? and improve myself and get to where I want to get to. So every failure to me is a, it's a learning. Why did it not happen? Am I going to give up? Uh, what can I do different? Who can I talk to to improve? And elevating myself. Uh, so that's why I mentioned that story. And basically, I mentioned, uh, as I mentioned, I applied over 80 times. My dream as a kid coming from a small island, small country called Bahrain, other side of the world. Uh, I always looked at myself that I want to work for Nike. I want to work for Adidas. It was my biggest dream ever. I was always into sports, always into design. 
and then being rejected over uh, many times uh it just uh, it allowed me to to push further and to to eventually get into the industry and work on amazing projects work with athletes and so on uh if you look at failure from a perspective of product design uh there's many stories i mentioned in the book uh for example james dyson uh, who designed and invented the Dyson vacuum cleaner. Now he does lots of different stuff, uh, home appliances and such. Uh, his first uh, product that came to market, he failed over 5,000 times. 5,127 times he failed until he was able to design the vacuum cleaner that he wanted to design, uh, which was basically a bagless vacuum cleaner, which didn't exist at the time. And the idea was that if you remove the bag, the suction power will be much uh, better, and then you can you know, clean the house much in a much uh, better position. So that's uh, that's James Dyson. If you look at the bubble wrap, for example, something that's an use... example. Yeah, I want to interject. <laughs> I think the bubble example is is amazing. So keep keep going because I'll, I'll circle back with a couple of questions. But go sure, there. sure, sure. So bubble wrap, uh, which we use in packaging, everybody uses it every day in everything. Uh, every house I think has bubble wrap in it. So the bubble wrap, when they first designed it, they wanted to do a texture. It was two engineers. They wanted to do a textured wallpaper. That was their idea. Uh, they saw that the texture, it you know, it popped and it was cool. It, it went to market, didn't really make it. And so then they started to think about different ideas. They thought about over 400 different ideas. One of them was uh, maybe it's a greenhouse insulation. They tried that, didn't work. They still believed in the product. They didn't know what to do with it. So they kept it for three years. Nothing happened for three years until IBM uh, had just released their 1401 computer. It's like a dinosaur, huge computer with lots of fragile parts. And they thought that this would be the perfect thing for packaging, uh, packaging the computer and ship it around the country. Uh, so it was 14, uh, the IBM 1401 when it came to the market. Uh, they used the bubble wraps, they packaged it, and then everything else was history. So lots of learnings there that they tried a lot, they had a vision, they believed in their product, and they also didn't, like this three-year gap, sometimes we think that things are going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, I mean, maybe sometimes that would be cool, but uh, three years, it took them three years until they found the right fit for it. And I've seen it like in different products that I've even worked on, like concepts. I worked on an N-Cycle project, which is an electric bike. Uh, we, we, we had a vision, me and my friend, Marine Miftio, he's an architect. We designed the bike, looked iconic, looked different. Uh, media went crazy about it. Uh, when we started to prototype it, we failed then we had to change something. And it costs a lot of money to do it. It was like 90,000 euros a prototype. And then we did a second prototype, a third prototype, fourth prototype, until we reached our eighth prototype. And with each prototype, we had learnings of what to do and what not to do and how we can improve. And eventually we made a bike that worked and now it's being showcased all around the world, different uh, museums, different trade shows. And it, it got acquired by a company in Italy. And I mean, Failure, you see it everywhere. Look at Steve Jobs, look at Leonardo da Vinci, look at uh, Thomas Edison. We've heard the story of the thousand light bulbs lots of times. So anybody who's successful, anybody who's made it, anybody who's innovated, they must have gone through the process of failing. And I always tell my students uh, when I'm teaching, imagine that one day you're gonna write a book, it's your success story, and it's gonna be super boring if you have no failure story. So embrace those failures, make something <laughs> out of it. <laughs> Um, you do a lovely job 
uh, in the book about talking, you know, it, let's go back to your uh, 80 applications and failed and not originally uh, from the U.S. having applied in the U.S. And then there's a it, later in the book, you talk about uh, essentially inclusion in design and diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds and ideas. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your experiences there, what roles and benefits this is for anyone who's building a team or even as an individual, like pulling ideas from, you know, all sorts of different um, backgrounds and vantage points. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about the sure. inclusion, diversity, and how to, you know, implement this in your world. Sure. So diversity, when I talk about diversity, there's two aspects to it. One is the team building. When I'm putting a team together, the more different this team is, the more diverse it is. Uh, we're from different countries, speak different languages, uh, religion. Uh, are you married? Are you single? Do you have kids? And so on. Uh, the more different we are, the more diverse we can be just because we have different perspectives. We have different thoughts. We look at things differently. And that's really important for having a strong team that can come up with great ideas. Of course, there's prerequisites to that, like, are they happy? Are you paying them well? I mean, leave all those things aside, but just as a team, like a core team, the more different they are, uh, the more great ideas they can come up with. And then there's the second part of that, uh, which I, I mentioned Franz Johansson earlier uh, in his book, Medici Effect. He talks a lot about the intersections, bringing things that are unrelated together from one industry and another industry, that kind of diversity. So, so I'll give you some examples there. Uh, for example, there was this architect uh, who wanted to, to do a huge building in Zimbabwe, Harare. And his goal was to not use any air conditioning in this building. So he looked at termite mounds and the structure of termite mounds. Uh, the reason he looked at termite mounds was uh, they maintain a certain temperature throughout the day. Uh, when you're talking about Africa, at night it gets cold, throughout the day it's super hot, so the temperature levels fall and drop. But termite mounds, it's consistent. The, the temperature levels, they don't fall, they don't drop. And it's just because the way it's structured, there's channels inside that release air and bring air in and the airflow and everything that happens inside. So he looked at that, implemented something similar into his architecture. And then he was able to save over $4 million in the construction of the building and over 90% in energy. And the temperature is at like 72 degrees throughout the, the day. So super innovative because he looked at something outside of architecture and brought it into architecture. Uh, Adidas, for example, uh, they created the, the Adidas Nemesis, which is a football boot. And they looked at how players tape their feet, uh, athletes uh, tape their feet, tape their hands, just to give them like more stability and support. And then they took that tape story and they brought that into uh, footwear design and they constructed a whole footwear, a whole shoe out of just that, uh, those torsion, those, uh, I think they're called uh, torsion bands or mm -hmm. I forgot the name of it now, but uh, it's like, it's just taping. So so then they engineered it and then they made it work so that it can give you good stability, good support, wherever you need it around the foot. And there's lots of examples around having that kind of diversity and pulling things in from different industries and bringing them together, things that are unrelated and, and putting them together and creating something unique. And the, the Renaissance, I mean, Renaissance, it's an amazing example of that, where the Medicis, they brought in the bankers, the poets, the sculptors, the artists, and it gave that rise to the Renaissance and the boom that happened with all these amazing talents and amazing uh, uh, individuals that came up out of it. Yeah, I'm 
fascinated by this idea of bringing outside industries. This essentially is, is a story of my own personal experience as a photographer looking to artists like Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat who are, you know, painters and, 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 or street artists, like their ability to, you know, to be, they're so urgent. Like the, you know, the Warhol famous quote is like, just make art. And while everyone else is judging what you made last time, you're continuing to make more art. So there's this radical productivity and radical, like not standing still and, and also making art about art, right? There's this sort of self-reflexivity. And that was, you know, inspired me to tell stories using videos and stills about being a still and video photographer. So, you know, there's this, this idea of borrowing things from outside or adjacent um, universes. Do you have any other very, I think that the, the architecture example is fascinating. Are there any particular things in your world where you feel like you have struck gold personally by, you know, bringing something from uh, an outside influence? I mean, oh, yeah, always, uh, like even I mentioned this earlier, like when I'm doing footwear, uh, like, how do I look at other industries? Do I look at uh, companies that produce uh, tires for traction, uh, companies that do baby strollers for fit, uh, things that are very unrelated. So we always like would collaborate with different industries and partners outside of footwear when I was in uh, Adidas. And I would see that multiple times that it would, uh, it would lead to great innovation. Now, maybe a specific example would be, uh, I keep going to footwear, but I kind of want to tap out of footwear. <laughs> no, no, don't worry about it. We're, we can, we can extrapolate. We're, we're good thinkers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so again, with James Harden, he needed great fit. Uh, we looked a lot at the seatbelt industry. How do they, uh, even at aerospace, when people go to space, how do they stay, you know, how does, how do their seatbelt system works? It's different than cars and looking at those and then tapping into ex, uh, people who have the expertise outside of footwear and even bringing them on as collaborators. So when we talk about diversity, it's really about collaboration and I might not know everything. Actually, I do not know everything that I might, I <laughs> do not know everything. <laughs> uh, I might not know everything within my specific field. Uh, so when I tap into other people, they're just going to add layers of expertise to what I do not know. And then we, we bounce ideas off each other and we come up with something great and unique. So embracing that mindset of diversity, working with others, appreciating others, appreciating that you are not the best person on the team. Uh, I think that's really key. Like even when I was at Nike, I remember there was a, a guy who was head of innovation and he told me he never wants to be the best guy on the team. And as a young designer, I was like, wow, it's because I thought that, oh, as the boss, you have to be the one who, who knows everything and you know, you're, you're the best one on the team. But, but no, being humble at all times and uh, appreciating the talent around you and bringing the right talent around you, that's definitely key to, to, to getting more innovative. And I'll add something to that. Maybe it's a bit unrelated uh, when we talk about teams and diversity, uh, surrounding yourself with positive people. I've been on teams that are super negative. I've been on teams that are super talented and negative, but I've also been on teams that have been average and super positive. And the teams that are more positive, they've taken me very far because the negative people, they will always kill your ideas uh, super early. Uh, egos come in the way. Jealousy comes in the way. And it's really important to surround yourself with the, 
put yourself in the right bubble, whether you're at work, at home, with your friends. Uh, I find that to be super important for me as a designer and my process. Hmm. Gold advice right there. <laughs> so um, one of the, you know, I like to wrap up the shows with as, as some very practical advice and a lot of, you know, you've done a nice job of weaving that in throughout your own experiences. And again, we've had very few product designers on the show, uh, a couple recently who, you know, designed notebooks, you know, Joey Cafone with, with Baron Fig. And we have had, you know, Stefan Sagmeister, legendary designer, who's, you know, put his mitts onto a lot of different things, but this specifically this idea of industrial, and you've talked to everything from cars to tennis shoes to, you know, vacuum cleaners. Um, those tend to, you, 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 you're almost over indexing on practical <laughs> because you're making you know, things that you can touch. You're making atoms, not necessarily bits. But what I was uh, inspired by at the end of the book is, is basically a handful of tools that you can use to, um, to help drive some of these attributes and these concepts that we're talking about. And essentially, they're sort of like design exercises. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, A, why you included that in the book. Is it because you think that we're okay at understanding these things, but bad at putting them into practice? Or were these some specific exercises that you have tried with your teams or in your own studio where you were able to get unblocked? Maybe you can give some sure. examples. So, so some of these practical examples are stuff that I give uh, when I do workshops on innovation. And uh, these are things that we have done in the industry, uh, different companies that I've been with. And it's just a great way to brainstorm and come up with ideas. Uh, so I can I can share maybe one or two of those. I, sure. I share eight in the book. Uh, so one is called reverse assumptions. And the idea of this is you take something that, uh, let's say you want to design a restaurant, uh, a new concept for a restaurant. All right, so what are, what are your assumptions or things that you know about a restaurant? It has food, it has a chef, it has tables, it has chairs, and maybe it opens at a certain time and closes at a certain time. And now you flip those assumptions around. Uh, okay, so this, uh, this restaurant doesn't have food. All right, then what does, it, what does it have if it doesn't have food? Maybe you take your own food. So, so just flipping things around, it allows you to think about things from a different perspective. Sometimes you'll get cool ideas. Sometimes it will be super silly. Usually when I do these, like people are always laughing, which is great. Uh, but it just allows you to not look at things the way that you always looked at it. So if it doesn't have, a restaurant doesn't have chairs and tables. All right, maybe it's a takeout restaurant. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a restaurant in the park where you sit on the ground. I don't know. Uh, if it doesn't have food, you take your own food. Maybe you cook your own food. If it doesn't have a chef. And so on. It just really opens the, it becomes limitless of what the ideas can be. So that's one, reverse assumptions. The second one is forced connections. I usually give people like 10 different uh, things, very unrelated, a bicycle, a seashell, a clock, a tree. And then I tell them, try to build a connection between two of those uh, random connections. All right. So maybe if it's a guitar and a bicycle, I can put, I can use the guitar strings and the bicycle wheels. And as you're pedaling, it plays music. For example, just a concept. Uh, if I have a seashell and a clock, maybe. So it just allows you to build those intersections that we talked about. So that's the second one. And just speaking of that as well, uh, when I do the workshops, even in like in the industry, 
I'd go to a Home Depot dollar store, buy very random stuff, ping pong balls, uh, hair clips, anything, things that have nothing to do with each other or with, with shoes. And then I'd put them on a table and then, okay, the brief is let's design a shoe that floats, a shoe that is comfortable, a shoe that is uh, lightweight. And then it really gives people a whole different perspective of uh, how things can look. Maybe you create a really cool silhouette out of that. Okay, then now I have this crazy concept. How can I make it realistic? Is it possible? Can I change things the way uh, and the way we manufacture shoes? So again, allows you to ask great questions and great questions. So, so that's something that I love to do and it always works. Again, people are always laughing and enjoying it. So those are two examples. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd finish up with this, that you know, being curious at all times and looking at people like Leonardo da Vinci, asking what, not being afraid to ask great questions. There's no silly question. There's no wrong question. Leonardo da Vinci asked all kinds of questions. Why is the sky blue? Uh, what does the woodpecker's tongue look like? And if you look at his notebooks, I mean, there's always these curiosities that he had on a daily basis. How can I make a circle into a square and so on? He was super curious. And that's what made him one of the greatest innovators of his time until even, even until today is considered one of the greatest innovators. So having that curiosity, having that mindset to always ask questions, always uh, be willing to learn new things, talk to people, see their perspective. That's super important. And that's an advice Tinker Hatfield gave me when I was in Nike. He's a, he's a well-known name in the footwear industry. He told me, be a curious sponge. And it served me really well. Be a curious sponge. Um, well, I want to give you a shout out for the Innovator's Handbook, um, which is brilliant. And it's a very lightweight read. Sometimes these books on creativity and innovation you know, they're 400 pages and it's basically a recitation of, you know, step-by-step -step through history. This is super absorbable. And if you are, um, you know, a teacher or a leader in any way, shape or form, and the, some of these, you know, these exercises at the end, you talked about, you've got eight here, absolutely brilliant for helping, you know, people think differently. So when you're, you know, in the in within a company and you're leading others or you're you're developing or building your own team and you're working to solve problems i was very very inspired and will definitely take some of these i also occasionally will do a workshop or you know with a, a team that i'm trying to build something with uh and whether it's even team building or helping them think a different way really fun fun book and great light read so congratulations on thank you, thank you. genius again the innovators handbook um Hussein, where should we look uh, outside of, you know, just purchasing the book and supporting you as an author? Where else can we find you or your work or uh, where would you steer us? Some coordinates out there on the internet. <laughs> uh, so LinkedIn, easy to find there. Instagram, I always share my latest. And I've also started a newsletter recently, a few months ago. It's called The Innovators List. So if you go to my website, uh, there's a newsletter uh, tab there. And by what are some of these addresses, what's the address of your website and sure. uh, your Instagram handle, for example, Instagram is M O S S A W I underscore. And then my website is Musawi studios.com. Uh, you want me to spell it or sure. Yeah. Think? M O S S A W I studios with S.com. And yeah, the newsletters, basically I share different uh, innovator stories and uh, exercises. Some of the stuff we talked about super light, short reads, and just something to keep you going. 
All right. I'm going there right now to sign up. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Congrats. Uh, love, love your perspective. And I want to just reiterate that these principles that we've you know been discussing with you saying are applicable across a broad, broad, you know, variety of industries. Um, and that is, I think the genius, right? If something is truly portable innovation happens in you know, every discipline and industry across the world. And thank you for helping us understand it a little more. Thanks for having me. Love awesome. being with you. Awesome. Until next time, everyone out the world from uh, Hussein and myself, until next time, we both bid you adieu. All right, that's all for today's show. But hey, before you go, I want to say thank you for listening and also for engaging with the platform. Wherever you consume the show, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere, thank you so much. Reviews help a ton if you're willing to. And I want you to let you know in an effort to continue the topics we explore here on the show or if you have questions, you can always direct your comments to me on all my social feeds. I'm at Chase Jarvis everywhere, but also... I will see your message quicker if you shoot me a text. That's right. I can text directly with you. The best way is to hit me up at 206-309-5177. I get a lot of texts, so I can't always get back to you right in the moment. But trust me, those are my thumbs on the other end of the keyboard. So I want to say thanks so much, and I look forward to engaging with you soon.